Welcome to a very special episode of the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This is a supercut of our favourite moments from the past 10 episodes. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tēnei, he kona i pūrangi tēnei, e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Kia ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This week is Conservation Week, and we're inviting you to look at nature through new eyes. As we work together to defeat COVID-19, many of us are looking at life and our world with different perspectives. Immerse yourself in nature this Conservation Week, online or offline. Look, listen, breathe and feel. To help you out with the listening part, we've taken our 10 existing episodes and cut together all the best bits. So sit back, take a load off, or pop your headphones on and go for a walk following the rules for your area, of course. All conservationists have great stories to share, but none quite like Kate McInnes, our doc vet. Kate has one of the most unique jobs in the world, treating our native species and advising on their care. She's passionate about veterinary teamwork And she had some wise words of caution for us about feeding native birds. Spoiler, don't. She's invented and modelled kākāpō sperm helmets, traumatised strangers with her work photo gallery, and taught people all over New Zealand about the cumulative impact of things like disease or increased predation. And she's got the stories to prove it. We spoke to Kate in episode two, and she had us in stitches. So so this was a genuine and serious conservation tool, okay? So let's just put that out on the table first. <laughs> so, Don't believe so you. We wanted to find out if kakapo were duds or studs. So we had a bunch of boys who'd never managed to father a baby, and we didn't know if they were fertile or not. And so we wanted to get sperm and have a look at it. And one of the ways they do that um, in other endangered species programs, so it's not something I made up, um, is if they have an imprinted boy who thinks he's actually a human, um, he will come down and try and mate with people. And they've done this with kestrels. I think it was the Mauritius kestrel, where they would wear a hat and the boy would bonk the hat and they could <laughs> they could collect the sperm. It was like, it sounded very simple. So so we thought, well, the Mauritius kestrel, I think, is about, you know, 250, 300 grams. It's really light. A kakapo is four kilos. And we had one in our site, Sirocco, the spokesbird of New Zealand Conservation. I wasn't prepared to have a four kilo kakapo sitting on a little hat on my head. <laughs> And I thought the hat might fall off. So I decided that a rugby helmet would be the way to go. And this is New Zealand rugby, you know, I'm going to embrace it. So I went down to the shop, bought a rugby helmet, and I thought, it's not very attractive. And if he does produce the goods, it's just going to fall off. (laughs) So I got a big tube of silicon sealant and I covered the hat with silicon. And then I made little rings of silicon. So there were little wells where the business could be done and I could collect it afterwards. You made the helmet. I made the helmet in the backyard of my Berenpore house (laughs) one sunny afternoon. (laughs) Ah, that is amazing. <laughs> so then we took it down to the island and we um, we went and visited Sirocco and he got very excited by the whole business. 
And so for about three nights in a row, I was out there in the evening with him bonking my head. He's quite heavy. He goes on for a very long time. He grunts the whole time he's doing it. And he didn't produce a thing. (laughs) So... I'm not sure if the concept was a failure or he just didn't like how we'd done it or if he just was never actually going to do it. But, yeah, so then we ended up with a photograph of it and Te Papa heard about it and we're doing a, a big exhibit on New Zealand and uh, and we gave them the helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Colin O'Donnell knows everything there is to know about Pekka Pekka, bats, and he's accumulated some wild stories in the name of science. He's encountered popping bats, game-changing technology, tiger prints, and gelatinous excretions, which is exactly as gross as it sounds. Here's Colin in episode eight. So wind farms are great, right? Everybody wants a wind farm because we want clean energy. energy, Yeah. Yeah. So what is the problem for bats when it comes to wind farms? Yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, globally, you know, there's obviously lots of wind farms, and people have been identifying for quite some time. Uh, lots of dead bats under wind turbines. And it is a global problem that turbines can kill bats. And for a long time, people thought, well, the blades are you know, striking the bats and killing them. But it turns out to be a much more interesting and complex story than that. Um, so, it's, I mean, what happens with wind turbines is that they heat the air and insects like warmth, and so they get attracted to them. And the bats get attracted to them and feed around the blades and that, there's a Canadian study where they use thermal imagery where you can see the bats actually flying around the curve of the blade catching insects. In and, the warm kind of the, yeah, microclimate. Yeah. yeah. And so, again, the bats have amazing you know, skill, I suppose, with the echolocation. Um, and they know the turbine blade's there and they can fly around it, even you know, however fast the blade is sweeping down. Um, but the problem is a thing... Uh, the problem is that the blade at certain wind speeds creates a change in barometric pressure and if the bat's flying around the blade at that time pop it explodes on the inside from the change in pressure and it's not funny for the bat no it's but, not um, funny it just sounds outrageous yeah. is it like when you dive too deep and you get the bends and you explode i yeah, I don't know about that, but it's called. <laughs> I mean, it's called barrow trauma, and yeah, it'll be something like that. So, um, I mean, what people are starting to do though is figure out are, are there bats at my wind farm, and then curtail the activity of the turbines at the times the bats are there. And overseas, especially in Germany, they're starting to put um, bat detectors actually in the turbines themselves, and they figure out the conditions when bats are most likely to be there. And they basically program the turbines to switch off when the bats are around. So it's actually not an insurmountable problem. It's a problem that certainly in New Zealand we really haven't thought about until recently. And hopefully we'll end up with lots more wind farms in New Zealand in the future. But we need to firstly place them in places where there aren't bats. And there's, you know, there's a hell of a lot of New Zealand that doesn't have bats in it. So um, you know, think about putting your wind farm in the right place. And then if it is a batty place, then figure out ways of identifying when the bats are there and you know turning the turbines off for that period of, of time. Some of these stories might be new for our more recent subscribers, hello and welcome by the way, but perhaps not as new to your ears as Hannah Hendricks, our Marine Species Support Officer and first ever podcast guest. Hannah is our go-to for all things marine management. Whale in the harbour, we talk to Hannah. 
Stranding somewhere? Let's find Hannah. Research and collaboration with other experts? Hannah will know. Here she is. We had our own southern right whale encounter in Wellington this year with so-called Matariki the whale, um, spending over a week in our in our harbour, which was really exciting experience um, for everyone in our team and it's probably my favourite thing of the year actually because um, you know so often we're dealing with strandings and stuff and it's quite sad but like this was actually a really sort of happy exciting thing to be dealing with and like all the public was really excited like people were breaking the law stopping on motorways <laughs> and going out in thunderstorms just to look at this thing like get a glimpse of it so um, that was a great experience and we got to work with, you know, the harbour master, the police, um, and the council on this. Um, we obviously uh, had to provide advice to the council about the fireworks, which was a brand new experience that none of us expected to have to do. Did they cancel them in the end? They postponed them to the following weekend. Because they didn't want to upset the whale. We didn't know how the whale would react, and with all the extra vessels on the water, we thought it would be safer to postpone. Yes, I love that story. That, that is a real story of Wellington, the wildlife capital, isn't it? Yeah. Like it puts off its fireworks display because it doesn't want to disturb the whale. For something as big as climate change, you need a pretty spectacular person to lead the charge. Jenny Christie has been talking about climate change for 11 years and has seen the room change a lot. Her job is to figure out how to change what we do to manage the impacts that we can already see and the impacts we're expecting. Here she is in episode 10. I'm really interested in what climate change is already doing to native species. What can we currently see happening? What we're starting to see is, and a lot of it's anecdotal and we haven't got the scientific research to back it up, but we're starting to see things like uh, the snails in northwest Nelson in dry conditions. The ground gets really hard and they uh, start to die and suffer. Uh, and up north, kiwi as well, if, mm -hmm. the, if the ground's really hard, and the kiwi struggle to get their beaks into that hard ground. Sure. And um, that's probably the the most um, topical one at the moment. But it, it's also things like our native fish species in alpine areas. Mm -hmm. There's a alpine galaxis in the Manaherakia. It lives in a few small streams up there, and they are temperature limited to below 12 degrees, I think it is. And I think last year the summer was so hot that the waterways were up to 13 or 14 degrees. And so it's like, well, how are these species surviving in, in that catchment? It's all sorts of things yeah. like that. It's Tuatara. They've got uh, temperature sex determination. So if their eggs get too warm, then... Are we going to have a lot of male to Atara? Yeah, it will affect them in a large number of ways and in ways that we haven't thought of. Sure. Is that that um, thing where it's about one degree difference for that male to female egg in Tuataras and that could be a functionally extinct population just like that? So I'm not sure of the exact <laughs> degree difference, but, but what you're saying is conceptually right. Yeah. It's the mission of this podcast to give you a behind-the-scenes look at as much of Doc's work as possible. Stu Coburn is a technical advisor who focuses on conservation technology, which is to say he invents stuff to save species. Stu's made grasshopper detectors, kākāpō trackers, and who knows what else. The Tech Team's workshop is a cave of wonders. Here he is in episode four talking about some of his more ingenious creations. It's kind of hard to pick one thing out. Um, pick a few. Pick a few. I, I think from an engineering point of view, one of the 
things I'm most proud of is um, the bat recorder we developed seven or eight years ago. It's kind of interesting that it was only in the 1960s sometime that humans discovered that bats used ultrasound for navigation, which isn't very long ago. And uh, since then, we've been developing techniques for capturing those sounds um, as a method of detecting bats. And in all that time, there's only a handful of methods that have ever been developed, and I'm talking about an engineering sense here, um, for detecting bats. And we create a new one. So um, we developed a new technology, and I will always remember the day we went up to Puriora, um, which is an amazing place. And uh, we put out these new recorders, which theoretically we thought would work, um, put them out in the field, and then we went and gathered them the next morning, put the recordings into the computer, and there was exactly what we'd expected and intended as theory by not, the, not just the engineering theory, but also what we'd read about the biology of bats and what we should be seeing. Um, that was a pretty good moment. Are you able to describe how they work? Yeah, so the trouble with recording bats, obviously, is that they use ultrasound and humans can't hear ultrasound, of course. So what you need to do is develop a technique so that we can electronically convert the ultrasound into something humans can interpret. Um, and there's several methods of doing that. Um, some of them involve shifting the sounds down electronically so that we can hear them, or just recording them and interpreting them on a computer. And ours is a form of that. As the bats pass by, we record them, we convert it into a thing called a spectrogram, which is an image representation of sound, and then we save that as an image. Um, the trick with it is because of the high recording rates, you end up with huge files, and, and we've compressed those images um, in a way that makes them much smaller and easier to handle. Um, so it's kind of a new technique, a new way of doing it, and it works. So as a conservationist engineer, uh, what does that mean for the bats? Because bats are tricky. A, most people don't know they exist. B, when you know they might be around, they're really hard to pin down. And C, because they move around so much, really tricky to, to try and look after. So, so what does your technology mean for those bats? Uh, it solves a lot of those problems that you just talked about. So what it's done is it's meant we've been able to produce a cheap, easy-to-use tool. We've made about 3,000 of them, and so they're used all over the country, and people use them to identify the locations of bats where they are. Um, at least two new populations of bats have been discovered using our recorders. So it's really what it means is it puts a detection and, and monitoring tool into the hands of our conservationists, our field staff, in an easy-to-use and cheap format. We can build them for our own staff for about a quarter of the price as we can buy something commercially. So um, it gives us this incredible tool that we can just go out and use, find where they are. What was it like for you guys the first time you trialled them, waiting to see those results pop up? It's um, always a little bit fraught when you develop something new. Yeah, uh, I think I made the point at some stage that uh, there's a billion ways of making things that don't work and, and very few of making ways of things that do work. So. You've always got an expectation of having problems on that first morning where it had just worked perfectly the first time we put it out to record bats was, yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a buzz. Nailed it. Did you know that the tallest moss in the world lives right here in New Zealand? Kelly Frogley is a doc botanist and the only non-vascular plant specialist we have. She can wow you with a fact about lichen having slow motion turf wars or that time that she found a lichen on a human skull. Here she is in episode nine, talking about green blindness and what that means. I love the term green blindness. Can you explain that phrase? Yes, so this is a term that I heard at a recent com uh, conservation network conference and I thought it just applied to non-vascular plants perfectly. Green blindness is that sensation when you're walking through a forest and 
everything looks the same. You don't really take it in. It's sort of like a green veil is covering everything. And I'm guilty of doing this in the past. When I was growing up, I would go for walks in the bush and I everything would just be a tree. I'd focus on mm. the track. I'd focus on my breathing. And <laughs> I wouldn't really notice anything that was around me. Mm. And once I start to, to learn more and to look, then then I have a completely new experience when I'm walking through the bush now, knowing what I'm surrounded in, what these plants are. So you've taken your green blindness up. Yes, I've Almost. lifted the veil. Lifted the veil. <laughs> I like that one. So how do you get people to lift the veil themselves to start noticing things around them? Cool. Good question. One of my favorite ways of doing that is to find a really mossy rock or log and ask people to look at it and tell me how many different species they see on it. And this includes mosses, liverworts, lichens, hornworts, whatever's on the rock slash log. And people just sort of look at it. They don't really know. And then they get all up in it. They start to look at different colors, textures and shapes. Uh, and then they realize that actually there's so much living in this one tiny little area. Uh, and it's really fun watching people discover that. And seeing that there aren't just a couple of species. Mm, mm-hmm. there are. Everyone is always surprised. Similar to the cryptic species she works with, Emma Williams is a rare sight in the office. But if you do spot her, she'll be running around in reed camouflage trousers carrying transmitters because her team have just found a bird they've been tracking. Emma is our mobile terrestrial threatened species lead and an expert on all things wetlands and the species that rely on them. With her trusted conservation dog, Kimmy, by her side, Emma has recently discovered something about bittern that changes the whole way we manage them. Here she is in episode five, talking about this groundbreaking discovery. Since I've been working on bitterns, which is quite a while now, we've had two big, um, I guess, groundbreaking discoveries. One was in 2016. We discovered that they were a lot rarer than we originally thought. They used to be nationally vulnerable. Um, and now we know they're nationally critical, which is the same threat classification as a kakapo. And the only way it can go if it gets worse is extinction. So there's a lot that needs to be done with them. Um, and so we started managing them then. But we thought at that time that they um, were quite localized in their movements, that they would stay within a region and just use a small network of wetlands. But very recently, thanks to GPS technology, we've actually worked out that they go very long distances. Um, so this happened um, last uh, October time. We put a GPS on our first Canterbury button and um, it disappeared off. All of a sudden it turned up in Blenheim and that was, that was new information for us. So that's 330 kilometres and that's showing that actually these are national birds. We haven't had one go between the North Island and the South Island yet, but this is early days. But um, basically, they're, yeah, they're, the whole of the North Island is the same kind of population of birds. What kind of population is there, do you think, roughly? So we, uh, the official estimate that was from the 80s um, was that the, we had a 1,000 birds, 1,000 bird hens. Um, but that was not doing any kind of national census. So they will have been double counting some birds. So that was basically a bunch of experts get together from different regions going, oh, well, we've got about 20 in our region. We've got about, and then the other region saying, okay, we've got about 30 and then adding it all up. And so now that we know that they move across regions. They could have been counting the same guy twice. And they're doing this between, across the breeding season. So within a relatively short space of time. Yeah. 
So I, I suppose it's just what you've just told us just demonstrates that value of science advice, doesn't it? Because that whole learning new things throws the management process we had for bitterns before out the window, essentially, isn't it? And it says, whoops, instead of managing this small area which we thought was going to be good for bittern, you now have to manage the whole lot. How does that work? Yeah, so it's um, it's completely thrown everything out because um, – Doc's whole system of managing wildlife is by a site-by-site basis. We have these things called EMUs, which is um, our ecological management units. And we have SMUs as well, which is... Species. Our species management units, yes. Unfortunately, that means that we're managing on a site-by-site basis. So basically it says um, Fangamarino wetland is an EMU forbidden. But Kapuatai wetland which is actually quite close to Fangamarino wetland, isn't for Bitten. But we know now that Bitten need both of those sites and also need the sites in the Bay of Plenty and also need the sites up in Northland. It's the same Bitten's. So if you're only managing a tiny proportion of, a bit of, a, of an animal's habitat, it's kind of like, in humans' terms, having good health and safety in one part of your, you know, just just being safe at home, but the rest of the time when you go to work, you're doing crazy things and not being safe. It's not, it's not going to work, you know, especially if I, I worked out at one site that um, in one year, the Bittens were spending 70% of their time outside of the managed site. And the rest of the time they're on farmland um, and they're in drains and, um, and there's no predator control in those places. Um, you know, there's no protection. Um, people don't even know they're there. Um, I had one farmer in a Hawke's Bay when I told them that a bitten was in a little patch of Ralpo at the bottom of their land. They got really, really excited and they were like, oh, well, thank God we found that out because we were going to remove that, that patch of Ralpo. And that's the only little patch that that bird has throughout the whole winter. So it was hanging on on that one patch. If they'd removed it, it wouldn't have had anywhere else to go. So it's really significant to us. Um, yeah, and makes a big difference. Birds get a lot of attention in the conservation space. That's not a bad thing, birds are great, but we could all spend a little more time talking about invertebrates, the unsung heroes of the ecosystem. Eric's job is science advisor ecology, which he describes as science advice for saving things. He has expertise as a freshwater biologist and an entomologist. And here he is in episode six, talking about Antipodean albatross and their poo patches. I've got a note here about Adams Island and something about an interaction you had with a poo patch. Can you tell me what on earth that is, please? Sure. <laughs> you, know, you know, talk about marine bird, you know, marine life bringing, you know, the birds bringing resources onto the land. And and so Adams Island is, uh, is one of those places that no rodent has ever been on, and that's hard to say for New Zealand. And there's been no fire there, and there's been no pigs or any other sort of thing on that island. Um, you know, it's far enough north that it still has tall forest on it. And, and, and so, you know, it is actually one of the most pristine places on the planet and, and a very, very important um, uh, legacy that we must take into the future as it is now. But the giant, um, the giant albatross that live there, um, Antipodes albatross that live on that island, you know, with a wingspan of two metres, they produce pretty, you know, quite a sizable poo patch around their nests. You know, it's metres wide, it's several metres wide. And, and so all the tussock is lush there and the herbs are extraordinary around there. And, and, and believe it or not, the insects are too, you know. So 
yeah, it's where it's where some beetles and moths do rather well, and and so that's a place where you dive down on your hands and knees and 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 just stick around and 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 just see how um, how it how it contrasts. You know, then you do that in an adjacent area that isn't the poo patch, and see the difference. Um, you know, it's it's marvelous. It is, isn't it? I, I always feel that that's the one thing people miss when they're talking about re- restoring places on the mainland, and they want to bring back, you know, this kind of bird or yeah. that kind of bird. My view is we should always try really hard to bring the seabirds back first and let them poo all over, the, let them create poo patches and drive that ecosystem function. There's modelling that, that tells us where the birds once lived. And so, you know, I'm interested in those sorts of places and, and I would, I'd like to fast forward it. I often think we should get a crop dusting aircraft and just go across them and actually, you know, actually you know, re, 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 redistribute the guano into those places and, and drive that ecosystem like it was once was driven. And yeah. without waiting for the birds. Yeah, without waiting for those birds to arrive back. Herb is often referred to around the office as our resident expert. We don't need to specify, he's an expert in everything. Herb is a conservation storyteller with a long passion for the outdoors and all the critters that inhabit it. This episode was by far the biggest for us to edit because Herb knows so much and has so many stories. He's a doc treasure for sure. In particular, he has a lot of knowledge about how conservation in Aotearoa has evolved over the years. Off we go to episode seven. I hinted earlier that you've been with the Department of Conservation for a wee while now. What are the the real kind of neat science and technical advances that you've seen? I was thinking about this earlier on because I had had asked myself this uh, in anticipation. And one of the most simple, straightforward things is GPS. You know, I went onto um, an operation one time with a map and compass and uh, the guy next to me had a GPS. And so it was like uh, you replacing the old. And I was very adept at using a compass and map, and I could find my way around the bush, not blindfolded, because I wouldn't be able to see my map. But this guy with a GPS, he was similarly also very adept at using the GPS, and I could see this coming a mile away. And the next minute you know, the GPS was involved in um, determining where our species were, how we managed our, uh, our helicopter flights, everything. Just positioning, because we're such a spatial organisation, GPS has made a huge difference to how we manage species and um, pests, just everywhere how you identify where pests are, how you identify where species are, um, what their habitats are, everything has to do with that. And Doing that without a GPS, I don't know how the hell we did it. Lizards don't get enough love. Of course, if you ask any one of Doc's staff about what area needs more attention, they'll say theirs, such as the nature of being a dedicated conservationist. Lynn Adams makes a brilliant point though. Lizards need more limelight. Our lizards are unlike those anywhere else in the world. For starters, they give birth to live young. And Lynn's been all over the country working with our lizard species. In episode three, she talks about her long love affair with the Chesterfield skink. So Chesterfield skink lives on this fairly unremarkable piece of beach just north of Hokitika. It's a nationally critical species and we've done a reasonable amount of research on it over the last three three to four years. Is that the one with the curly whirly tail? Curly whirly. <laughs> I love this yes, one. Curly Willy. So that was a, a name that we gave to a, a skink. It curls its, its tail, its whole body actually curled up into this, it's like a curly fry. Yeah, it's like, or like a, a Mr. Whippy. Mr. Whippy. Ice cream. Or a turd, I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> Seems we're always going to go there in this podcast. <laughs> 
Um, that aside, so the reason it's got a nice curly woolly tail is because we think it's probably arboreal, so they use that tail, just like monkeys do, to grip onto to forests. And so the species is now living in the, on the coast, on the beach. It was probably coastal forest back in the day, and it's all been cut down. Um, it's lost most of its habitat. It's probably been preyed upon by all the mice and cats and hedgehogs in the world, and it's now down to a population of 200. We had a major setback last year with um, Cyclone Fahey, which I, I'm sure lots of people are going to remember that one. It was a really damaging cyclone, and what happened at um, at our Chesterfield skink site was that they on their little safe we thought was safe beach site there were these massive um, waves massive tides which overwashed them the whole the whole entire population was overwashed over a couple of tides and so I got that news when I was sitting in Invercargill doing some other work and I actually thought that we'd lost the whole species so it was that was my worst day worst day there were a few tears I'm not surprised (laughs) there were a few tears Thanks for joining us on this whirlwind tour of past episodes of the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Now these are just snippets, each guest has a full length episode which you should absolutely check out if you haven't already. This show is a glimpse behind the curtain at Doc's work and an opportunity for nature lovers all around the world to learn from experts and nerd out over our shared passion. In 2020, many of us have had to slow down and take time to reflect on the most important things in our lives. We've had to change how we live and what we can do. For Conservation Week 2020, we are encouraging everyone to look at nature through new eyes. Immerse yourself, online or offline. We've got this Aotearoa. Stay kind. Kia kaha. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now, never miss an episode. 